When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is September 2nd. Today, I am joined by veteran options trader Imran Laka of Options Insight. Imran, welcome to Real Vision. Hey, Jack. How are you? I'm good. So just to give uh, people a sense of what we're going to talk about today, uh, today, the jobless claims came in at a pre-pandemic low, and then there's the non-farm payrolls figure that we await tomorrow. And of course, today, uh, the S&P 500 ended yet again on all-time highs, led by the cyclical stocks, particularly the industrials, the energy names. Imran, uh, I wanted to ask, how are you making sense of this market? It seems like everyone is really bulled up. Um, day after day, we're making all-time highs. Are you one of those people? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's hard to fight the tape, right? I mean, um, generally, going into about a couple of weeks ago and Going into Jackson Hole, I was a little bit more cautious. Um, but the price action is just undeniable, right? So, you know, we've had probably for the last two or three months, every expiry, every every third Friday expiry, markets tried to have a little bit of a wobble. Um, and that's because more and more people are understanding how options dynamics impact the market, how gamma positioning leads the market to not move for ages into an expiry, and then it frees it up to move. And people try to front run that and position themselves to get bearish into that expiry. And whilst we do manage to dip maybe 50 to 100 points on the S&P, the sheer ferocity at which we rip back is telling you there's just this underlying bid to the market, right, that you can't deny. And, you know, reasons for it may be that people just believe the Fed is just going to do whatever it takes to keep equities going higher, right? So even though we've priced in some kind of tapering, by the end of the year, it looks like it's a soft taper, right? So it won't be it's the kind of thing that's going to derail asset prices because we know the Fed doesn't want to derail asset prices. And and then you've got other dynamics at play like corporate buybacks. You know, obviously the tech sector has been doing that for a while, but now you've got the banks joining the party. You've got passive inflows, that wall of passive money that Mike Green talks about has gone nowhere, it's still coming. And, and these are all price-insensitive buyers, right? They're not waiting for value. They're not waiting for a cheap, a dip to buy. They're just buying because that's what they're programmed to do, right? And, and I don't think, you know, I, I think for us discretionary marriages, we need to look at it and, and, and see it for what it is. And, and actually, it doesn't seem like positioning or sentiment within the discretionary community is actually that long, right, or that extremely bullish because people are scratching their heads going, surely there needs to be a pullback. And they're waiting to buy the dip, yet the dip just isn't coming, right? Or a dip is so brief and so short-lived that they don't seem to be able to get it. So that's, that's what I think is going on. Yeah, since November, I think, uh, of last year, the S&P 500 has marched steadily higher, maybe a 1%, maybe a 2% pullback. 
But there literally has never been a time over the past 11 months or, or 10 months where the S&P 500 has had an over 5% correction, which normally, in, in the case of an equity market or, the, or an index, is uh, sort of comes with the territory. But it has been, you know, there's been almost no sweat for, for equity investors. Mm -hmm. um, to what do you attribute that, Imran? Is oh. it... It, it's yeah. not there's not been a correction in the S&P, but you've got you had corrections within sectors. Right. So you had if you break down the various sectors of the market. Right. They're kind of handing off to each other. And you have like correction in the arc stocks earlier in the year. But then you had other stocks, you know, leading then cyclicals or whatever. And then, and then you had the opposite happen where the growth names came back and the Nasdaq rallied and the cyclicals underperformed as we started to see virus hasn't disappeared. Delta variants coming, rate of change of growth is slowing, those sort of things. So it's been a handoff from sector to sector. The broad-based S&P hasn't corrected, but different sectors have had meaningful corrections along the way. Yeah, and Imran, going into Jackson Hole, you were telling me that you had a very specific trade uh, involving a puts on the S&P as well as VIX futures. Can you yeah. tell us about that trade and explain for some people who might not know what those terms mean, uh, why they're sure. significant? Sure. So the VIX is uh, volatility futures. So the VIX index tracks the volatility of the S&P, the one-month rolling volatility of the S&P. And generally, you know, over the last couple of months, I've been a bit of a buyer of VIX on dips because I think the VIX is finding a bit of a floor around 15 uh, and we're in that kind of environment where there is enough tail risk, there is enough risk out there that I don't think VIX is going to collapse significantly below 15. And you also had Jackson Hole coming up, and now you've got the September FOMC coming up, which arguably, maybe they're not so much now, but they were considered market risk events, right? So that would mean that implied vol in the form of the VIX should kind of hold up. It shouldn't absolutely collapse and fall out of bed, basically, right? On the other hand, realized volatility was falling out of bed, right? So going to the last expiry, I think realized vol was sub five, something ridiculous like that on the S&P. Really? Well, we got so pinned to the strike in the week before expiry, it just couldn't move, right? And, uh, and then we had a little bit of turbulence around expiry, and then we've, we've done it again and realizes about 10. So realize is tracking at about single digits, basically, whereas implied, well, in form of VIX, seem to be flawed at about 15, right? So the trade that I already had some VIX futures going into Jackson Hole, but I was a little bit nervous that the market was just going to take whatever Powell said relatively well, and it would price some risk out of the market. So the way I basically hedged that was I said, well, I just think realize is the thing that's going to remain low, especially before September FOMC, whereas I think implied might find a bit of a flaw, whatever happens. So I ended up selling September, so that expires the Friday before FOMC, right? So third Friday of September, I sold the 4,300 puts on S&P, and I did that against the fact that I was long VIX futures, right? So if the market rolled over, yes, the puts would lose money, but I'd make money on the VIX futures. If nothing happened, the puts would decay away. The VIX futures would probably go down a bit. Again, no, no real, nothing really happens to me. If the market rips higher sharply, what might happen is the puts will go to zero that I sold, which is great, and the VIX might actually just float, right? The VIX level might just stay at 15 or 16, even though the market goes significantly higher, in which case my VIX futures won't lose me a lot of money, 
but my puts will go worthless that I'm short and I'll make some money that way, right? So the idea is what you're trying to do a lot of the time when you trade options and you play relative value against various derivatives is you're trying to set up asymmetry in your portfolio. So you look at all the different outcomes. Some outcomes will be a bit of a nothing done, and then there'll be one outcome where you're just going to have a bit of a windfall, and that's where that asymmetry comes in. Yes, just explain a few terms. Implied volatility is what people who are buying options or, or selling options are paying for uh, the, the rate of change. How volatile do they think it is? Historical volatility is what actually happens. Uh, and so the VIX, that is, that is such a key point because the VIX is a uh, index of implied volatility and there's a futures curve for it. So by buying the VIX, you are long vague, a long implied volatility. And then by shorting the puts on the S&P, it's a you know mildly positive delta position. So you're, you're long the S&P, but you're also short the volatility of the S&P. The last thing you said, Imran, is such a key point, and I really want to dig into this. And thank you for sharing this excellent chart, um, which we, we we're going to put up shortly, which is the floating VIX. The fact that the VIX right now is at what, I don't know, 15, 16, that is relatively high for a time of, you know, an, an, an a, you know, unbeatable bull market where day after day the S&P 500 reaches new highs. Let's put this chart up and just explain uh, why it's so significant and what you see there. So is the chart there, yeah? So the, the, this chart basically, it, every data point on this chart is when the S&P is making a new all-time high, right? And it's going back, you know, pretty far. So as you can see, going back to 91. So generally, when the markets are making a new high, it's when things are calm, when vol is relatively low. That's the type of environment you're in, right? And so it's broken down all the various years and, and kind of showing you where they lie. But you can see that we had a period where markets were pretty buoyant and rallying and making new all-time highs between, say, 2013 and 2017, where VIX was pretty much in a range of 8 to 15, right? Um, whereas if you look at what we've had in the last year, we've had quite a lot of dots. Those red dots are actually number of occurrences where the S&P's made a new all-time high. So there's quite a lot of them this year, yet all of them are happening above the level of 15 in the VIX, so between 15 and, say, 23. So that's showing you that we kind of, in the cycle that we're in, even though we're rallying, we are rallying on a relatively high levels of volatility. And, and that's more sort of reminiscent of what was going on in 97, 98, 99 in the tech bubble era, right, where markets were rallying, but they were rallying sharply, right, or there was volatility around. So I just think that that is showing us that this cycle is showing us that 15 is quite a big level on the VIX, right? Now, I'm not saying we can't break it, but we will need to have a sustained period of really low realized vol to break 15 on the downside in the VIX, it seems, right? Because at the moment, people are seeing the dislocation between the real economy and the market and scratching their heads and saying, well, okay, I have to be long the market and participate, but I have to own some protection as well. Otherwise, I'm going to look like an idiot, right? And so that's why the VIX is pretty elevated and the VIX is quite expensive relative to levels of at-the-money vol. And we can see that in the fact that skew is quite steep, right? But that, that VIX level represents not only implied vol, but also the steepness of skew. And that's why the VIX is quite high, even though we keep making highs. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and the VIX is commonly referred to as the fear index. I would say fear should be low when you're making, uh, you know, the stocks are making new all time highs every single day, but we're not. Historically, the VIX is actually somewhat high, of course, nowhere close to the 80, but it's, it's quite strange. Uh, by the way, someone asks, uh, did Imran borrow Ash's microphone? <laughs> no, I was inspired by Ash's NFT, that, and, and, and I kept getting told that I should buy a better microphone, so I thought, why not? Yeah, I mean, it, I obviously should get it. It looks cool. It sounds great. Um, I don't know why everyone doesn't have that microphone. I don't know so, why Ash moved. I, I Ash, he was, he was an early adopter, but then for some reason, you know, he, yeah. he left it. Yeah. It should be standard issue for anyone on Real Vision, I think. I completely agree. And people in the comments, let us know if you agree as well. We also have a comment. Someone wanted to know, is, is Ethereum going to hit $5,000 anytime soon? Do we want to get into crypto options now? Or let's, let's talk about the cyclicals for a few minutes before, because Imran, made, you made a phenomenal uh, trade going long calls on Ethereum. That is buying optionality on Ethereum. So to basically be super long, it, and I, I want to hear about your journey, but just really quickly, because uh, you know the, the title of this video is a bounce back in cyclicals and XLE, the energy sector did roar higher, something like two and a half percent today. Mm -hmm. uh, it faltered, you know, among fears of the Delta virus and a slowdown. But what is your outlook for uh, the cyclical sector going forward? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's the value pocket right now. You know, I think. It seems like there's no point fighting the tape. Market wants to go higher. We've seen that in the price action. But to go significantly higher and maybe get close to 5,000 on the S&P, we're probably going to need to get some of that movement out of the financials, the energies, the industrials, the things that are relatively lagged. Those are the probably the things that are going to have to lead us to get to those levels if we're going to get there by year end or whenever it may be. So I think that handoff is going to happen again. We're in the relay race. Techs are getting a bit tired. They're going to hand off to the cyclicals. If the Delta virus is behind us, if uh, cases are peaking, people aren't, not as many people are dying, generally that tends to be quite good for the market. You look at what happened in India, for example, and what happened in their market from peak virus point. Um, if that's an analog, then we probably do have a bit more to go in terms of the cyclical sectors. So you see that opportunity in cyclical sectors it's my understanding, Imran, that you recently expressed a trade that was bullish the tech sector, particularly the NASDAQ, the QQQ, or, or the Qs. Um, tell us about that, and, and we'll put up a chart of, of the, um, what is it, uh, SKU as well. Yeah, so, so the thing about the NASDAQ, I mean, people are drawing parallels to the tech bubble and saying that we may well see a period of acceleration on the upside in tech, right? As the, the whole TINA, there is no alternative is coming to fruition, where are people going to put their money? And they can't just they can't just sit there and underperform. They have to own it. Now, looking at this, this chart kind of shows you the term, uh, not term structure, the skew surface in October expiry, right? So roughly six-week options. And it shows you what that surface has done over the last month. And you can see that the bright green is where we are now, and the, and the darker green is where we were a month ago, okay? And where we were. So where the implied vol is across all the different strikes. And what, what that basically screams out to me and says is that upside vol has got smashed. Okay, so the likes of the 390, 400, 410 strikes, which are 
five percent out of the money, let's say, on on queues, they've they've got hammered in terms of volatility, right? So they're they're offering you relatively good value, okay? If you think a melt up is still possible from these levels, right? Which I mean, I think Nasdaq's clearly showing us that it doesn't really matter what level it is, it can do another 10% quite easily, right? So, um, so the trade that I'm doing, and it's not it's not a conviction bull trade because we may well have topped out. I don't know where the top is going to be in the short term, right? But uh, the trade that I'm doing to take advantage of the fact that the skew's quite steep and the upside vol to me looks quite low for Nasdaq is that I'm selling the 390 calls in the triple Qs and I'm buying three times quantity-wise, the 400 strike calls in the queues, right? So that's it. I'm selling a one by three call ratio. And what I'm basically doing, and it's costing me nothing, right? So the pricing of those options is such that I actually collect 20 cents. I collect a tiny bit of premium. And the idea is over the next two or three weeks, I wouldn't run it to expiry because then you can get into trouble. But over the next two or three weeks, if we go nowhere to go slightly lower, there's not a lot of money that I'm going to lose because the structure doesn't cost anything and it doesn't decay that badly. But if we get an acceleration of the likes that we saw in 99 to the upside, I'm going to kick into a load of Greeks at a 12 vol and a load of delta on the queues, which could do God knows how much, 10, 20%. And that can make a hell of a lot of money for something that you don't actually spend any premium for up front. Right, so yeah, you said Greeks. I thought you were going to say green, as in I'm going to get into a hell of a lot of, of green. So <laughs> well, hopefully that too, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> if you're uh, the the Qs, the Nasdaq 100 is at 380 now. Hard to believe. Only a few months ago it was at 310. So by selling a call, so if if it uh, doesn't expire, if it blows below 380, it sounds like you make the premium, the 20 cents. You know that big big yeah, whoop. Between 380 and 390, that's when you lose the money. But then once it goes well past the 390 it's it's off to the races yeah you only really lose money if you if you look at it as a terminal trade till expiry you only really lose money between 390 and 400 yeah right? so i got my numbers wrong but yeah 390 yeah, 400, 390 yeah. 405 right but but the point is you're not going to run it till expiry you're, you're going to run it for the next two to three weeks in the hope that we get an acceleration if we don't get it you're either going to exit it or you're going to roll it to november so the idea with these type of trades is to keep the duration long enough that that you don't get into the trouble area, basically, the, the danger zone, if you want to call yeah. it. You know, Imran, earlier you mentioned uh, share buybacks, and that made me think of a new piece of content that's coming out on Real Vision tomorrow. Um, it is Rao's first show uh, that he's going to go back to macro um, from crypto, and it's called Rao Pal, uh, The Journeyman. And he's talking to uh, Jurian Timmer of fidelity and they're talking about share buybacks and uh, let, let's take a look at the clip share buybacks are a really important and often underappreciated uh, part of this bull market uh, the buyback era started in 04 more or less so before the financial crisis before qe before zero interest rates so it, it predates the kind of the financial engineering side of what the fed is doing so i do think that it's bigger than just the fed is creating misallocation of capital so therefore companies are just buying back shares but i think a, a corporate treasurer is sitting on a lot of cash and those are just they're basically excess earnings right so they're they're more cash flow than they know what to do with and a lot of these companies very smartly decided to to essentially return that cash to shareholders 
So share buybacks hoisting the market higher, passive hoisting the market higher. There's something else that Timmer brought up is it's Ethereum. And he, like Rao, is very bullish on crypto, not just Bitcoin, but also Ethereum. And Imran, I wanted to ask you a question because the last time you were on Real Vision, it was a Real Vision Live where you told uh, the plus members of Real Vision about a trade. Uh, and that trade was selling calls on Bitcoin and then buying calls on Ethereum. So you wanted to exploit the potential outperformance of Ethereum over Bitcoin. Let's put up a potential, let's put up a chart um, of that performance because since then, Ethereum has been up something like 80%, whereas Bitcoin was up uh, 48%. So number one, Imran, I want to say congratulations on the trade. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, so tell us, what, what, how did that trade go? You know, bring us, walk yeah, us through. So, so um, the idea was, you know, crypto was not in a great place when I was putting that trade on, right? So Ethereum was at around 1800. Bitcoin was in the doldrums that are out in the low 30s. And, and, and so, you know, the conviction to go out and just buy a load of crypto, it was a tough space to do it. And, and I was just of the mindset that, you know, I don't know if we're going to go down first. But I think we're ultimately going to go higher, but I thought we might have needed a break of that 28, 29 area and go lower first. So I wasn't, wasn't ready to just throw a load of premium on the fire and just buy a load of naked calls. So I was looking for ways to express a, a, a long crypto trade without spending any premium. And I was pretty confident that if we went up in crypto, Ethereum had the legs to outperform basically, right? And that was based on looking at the chart of the Ethereum Bitcoin price spread. Uh, that was based on the understanding the narrative behind Ethereum and that, that there were some catalysts for Ethereum in the likes of the EIP 1559 upgrade, um, which was gonna burn the gas fees and take, out, take down the inflation rate within Ethereum. And all those things were gonna make the, the Ethereum narrative pretty bullish, right? That was the idea. That's kind of the way crypto goes. Even though you know it's coming, when the event comes, people still get excited about it, right? That just seems to be how it trades, right? So, so that was the idea. And, and even though the volatility differential between Ethereum and Bitcoin was quite expensive, it was like 15 vol points, that's only expensive when you're trading like a dealer and you're hedging your gamma day-to-day -day and you care about the day-to-day -day movement of the assets and... 15 vol differential, you know, that equates to like nearly an extra 1% move coming out of Ethereum every day versus Bitcoin, which it may or may not do. But when you think about it as naked premium and you don't care too much about the vol differential, then you are able to buy, you know, way out of the money options that at, at, at a premium differential that wasn't that different. So I was able to buy, I think I did August, I did the 3,500 calls in August against the 55,000s in Bitcoin, and that was pretty much a zero-cost trade. And then in September, I did the 3840 calls against the 56,000s in Bitcoin. So I was running those positions in August and September. As we were rallying throughout the month of August, because August was getting a bit close to expiry, and this is what I always tend to do with my short-dated positions is the ones that you are long, the options that you're long, you want to roll them to extend their life. Whereas the ones that you're short, you just want to let them decay worthless if you don't think they're going to go anywhere near the money. So what I did is I stayed short my August Bitcoin, let that thing die worthless because we never broke above 55. And I rolled my premium that my August 35s were, I rolled that into September, right? 
So, and I already had the trade on in September as well. So, so all I've ended up with is a, a lot of September options in Ethereum, which have grown nicely. I've managed to cash in on the short side on the August Bitcoin. I'm still short a bit of uh, September Bitcoin. And then I also added the, added the same trade again in October expiry with, um, with different strikes at the start of this week, as it looked like Ethereum was breaking out again. When Ethereum took out 3,400, it kind of looked like the next leg was on, right? And, and so that was the time to add to your conviction. So, Imran, all in all, what has this position uh, netted? Because you had a net cash inflow when you sold uh, Bitcoin, because you sold the obligation to, you know... Uh, um, uh, yeah, you I know. mean, it wasn't a net cash inflow because I was paying for the Ethereum call. So it's relatively zero... Right, pre- net cash, but, you, but you had a gross cash inflow that you never had to redeem because the Bitcoin calls expired worthless. So you get you made the money there, and then your net your gross cash. Yeah, so like, I, I guess that's why I hear him. That appreciated much. So all in all, like what's the what's the what's the P not the P and L, but what's the uh, return? Yeah, I mean the return's decent, right? I mean it's still to be determined because it really depends on where I get out of these September calls. I mean my target, my initial target was four thousand to start taking profit on some of the kind of closer to the money stuff particularly, and probably all of the September stuff I'm going to take off um, if we get through 4,000. And then I, and I may then keep the trade or roll the trade in October and longer dated maturities. But, you know, it's a function of like what notional you do and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I, I've done all right off it. I can't, I can't complain. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Nice. So you said you're eyeing Ethereum at 4,000 when you want to get off the trade. We're pretty close there now. Someone in the audience asks about 5,000 Ethereum. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's all very possible. I mean, the, the big narrative out there now is triple halving, right? So for those who, there's like a, there's a large 150 page document that I've got research guys put out called the Ethereum triple halving. And basically the thesis is that what this proof of, uh, move from proof of work to proof of stake when it becomes Ethereum 2.0. And I don't think there's a firm date on that, but people are saying maybe by March next year. Uh, if that was to happen by then, the way that people would be validators of the blockchain for Ethereum will completely change, right? And and they will have to stake a certain amount of Ethereum to become the the validators. And that will just take a hell of a lot of Ethereum out of the liquid supply. And so the, the supply shock you would get in Ethereum will be the equivalent of the, you know, every time that Bitcoin has a halving, you that's a big supply shock to, to Bitcoin. Well, the equivalent in Ethereum is of three halvings, right? So like half three times, basically. So that would take the supply down by something crazy like, um, you know, 87.5% or something. And if you look at what Bitcoin price tends to do post-halving, six months after each halving, like the thing does like 5x or whatever it seems. So what the hell is Ethereum going to do? If we do like three halvings at, at, in one go, what, what's Ethereum going to be trading at six months after that ETH 2.0? God knows, right? But I don't think it's a case of waiting until after. I think there's going to be a lot of front running. It's going to be a lot of people going into that to play that move. And so some percentage of that move is going to happen early. And then you've also got the fact that um, NFTs are on fire, 
right? So the whole NFT space is on fire. You've seen the notional that's trading on OpenSea. Um, it's just bringing it's just bringing more and more people into crypto, and it's just you know. Whereas before you had the investor class adopting crypto because of the return profile. Now you've got like fashion and artists and musicians coming to crypto because they want to tokenize their product and they want direct access to their customers and they and and it's just all of that adoption is now going to basically filtering through to the rest of the world and, and that's pretty bullish for ethereum i think right yeah do you have any views on nfts would would uh you know you said you were inspired by ash's nft yeah i i, I really want to learn more about them um i don't know enough about them i'm struggling to get my head around what makes a particular NFT valuable other than the brand and the the kind of following of the person who releases it, right? So I think it's a way, people are using it as a way to monetize their brands. And so if you're a guy like me who doesn't have much of a brand or a following and you release an NFT, good luck getting any money for it, basically, right? If you're someone like Raul, maybe, you're going to get some money for it. So I don't know how that works. I don't know if there's, um, companies out there or brands out there that are basically reaching out to artists and content providers and people with talent and saying, come on under our brand umbrella and we will release NFTs in, in terms of your artwork or your music and we'll, and we'll take a cut of that because we know that our brand is going to make that successful and we'll be able to sell it into a hot NFT market um, and 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 use our brand to leverage that, right? I, I guess that's there's probably a business model there. I'm sure someone's doing it. I don't know who. Mm -hmm. uh, Imran, to Raul as well as to a lot of people, I think the uh, reason to be attracted to crypto markets make a lot of sense. I think what's less understood is the crypto options market and the risks uh, and the rewards and the opportunities that are there. How mm. do you see the options market? And what do you feel that it offers you as someone who is bullish crypto, but you also like to make these sort of relative value trades? Well, it's just there's just so much you can do with options, right? This is why I'm an options educator, right? Because I, I want to teach people to, I want to empower people to utilize options and understand how the options can help you, right? Options get a bad rap, right? People think they're too risky. People think they're going to blow up trading them and stuff like that. But if you get taught how to trade options properly, they just give you a whole load of multiple dimensions to express your views. I mean, that trade that I did Ethereum versus Bitcoin, you would only know how to do that if you're a professional options guy who had some proper training and education. But you, I was able to create a very asymmetric scenario in that case where crypto could fall out of bed, Ethereum could be down 80% and Bitcoin down 50. I don't lose a bean, right? <laughs> but what's ended up happening, I've done really well. So, you know, I, I just think there's loads of opportunities in space. I've always said... The best, the best asset to trade options in is an asset that knows how to move and an asset whose volatility knows how to move. Mm. That's definitely the case for crypto. The options market has got decent volume, decent liquidity. It's been getting better and better over the last couple of years. Great news just came out that FTX are basically teaming up with LedgerX in the US. So whereas Deribit was the main options exchange, US guys couldn't really play in that space. Now you've got a U.S. exchange going for it properly on options. So over the next six to 12 months, I imagine U.S. options volume is going to blow up in terms of uh, crypto options as well. And it's just, there's just loads to do, right? You know, the, the, you can match different investors' risk profiles using options, right? You can have someone who's been a 
who's been long crypto for five, 10 years, made a fortune, right? And hasn't hedged it the whole way. And is now like, well, I'm worth so much money, maybe I should consider hedging it. And they could do risk reversals around a percentage of their crypto. Explain to people what a risk reversal is. Yeah. A risk reversal is where you buy put options. You have protection if the thing sells off because you have the right to sell it at the strike. And, and you fund the premium. The premium that that put costs you, you get that premium by selling a call option that's out of the money. Right. And the, the great thing about crypto is crypto often trades with a call skew rather than a put skew. So in S&P, you know, if you were doing that in your equity portfolio, normally you have to pay quite a lot against the odds because the whole the whole world wants to buy puts and the whole world wants to sell calls. So you're having to pay up for that protection. The great thing about crypto markets is actually because of the lack of adoption still and the fact that a lot of people like using call options to speculate in crypto, call options trade quite high. And especially in things like Ethereum right now, call options are really high relative to put options, yeah? Particularly like six to 12 months out. So you, you could have a large Ethereum portfolio that you've had since Ethereum was at 200. Ethereum's now nearly at 4,000, so you've done pretty well, yeah? And you can say to yourself, right, I'm gonna buy a load of 3,000 puts in 50% of my notional of what I'm long, and I'm gonna sell whichever call I need to to get that premium back, right? And even if we go up and blast through that call strike, I only give up half my position and I do it at a level that maybe is another 50% higher in two months, basically, right? Whereas if we roll over and go back below 3,000, I'm locked in. I don't lose anything below 3,000, basically. So, and I've been long since 200 or whatever it is, right? So, you, you know, it's, it's great because you can tailor it to your risk profile, to where you've been long, where you've, how much money you want to protect, all that sort of stuff, right? So that's a great way of doing it. And then on the long side, if you're not long a load of crypto outright, you can participate without having to risk your shirt, right? You know, people looking at Bitcoin saying, oh, I knew I should have bought it at 30K. Now it's at 50K. I can't bring myself to doing it. But if it goes to 100K by year end and you don't have any of it, you're going to kick yourself. So you could do simple things like year end call spreads, like something like the 70,000, 100,000 call spread to end of year. And that's probably a 10 to one payout or something, right? I don't know if it is, but I th last time I checked, it's not far away from a 10 to one payout, right? So that way you don't risk too much money. But if we go to 100,000, you make 10 times what you risked. It's not bad. Imran, we're, we're running out of time. I've got a quick answer, quick question for you, which is, Bitcoin is very seen as an inflation hedge, and it really has eaten the lunch of the traditional inflation hedge, gold. I look at the uh, skew, at the term structure of gold and gold ETFs like GLD, and it to me it seems like if gold were to rip higher or rip lower, that isn't necessarily priced into the options. What would you say if, if you, you know, I was to say, hey, Imran, I'm thinking of buying some calls on GLD out of the money. I like calls on GOD. I've been recommending them to my trading community. Um, I think you might be better off. I wouldn't go too short dated because gold's notoriously slow at actually moving. Um, I think 1835 is a big level of resistance. If that breaks the upside, I would take that as a signal. I'd go to March 22, maybe June 22, and buy maybe 20 Delta calls. Close your eyes, buy those. They'll probably do quite well. Right. Okay. Great. Well, uh, thank you.
thanks so much, Imran, for joining us. Everyone, uh, thanks for sticking with us through the options talk. It really is fascinating. Uh, if you want more on uh, options, I will be interviewing volatility arbitrage manager Chris Sidiel tomorrow, who has uh, sort of reinvented uh, or has a new style of tail risk in terms of single stocks, short dated rather than the traditional long dated on a basket. Uh, it, it will be fascinating. I just did a pre-interview, so definitely watch that. You, that will be available to all Real Vision Plus members. And then, of course, tomorrow is the grand launch of Raoul Pal, the Journeyman, with uh, Jury and Timmer. So stay tuned for that on the Essential tier. Thank you so much, Imran, and thank you to everyone watching. Have a good night. Thanks a lot. Take care. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.